this is Paths to Product, a show about current product managers and how they transitioned into the role. I'm Pallavi Hikarikar, and on the show today, we interview Lewis Lin, an entrepreneur, tech executive, public speaker, and the author of the infamous PM interview book, Decode and Conquer. We'll discuss his top tips for aspiring product managers. Today, I'm joined by Lewis Lin. Lewis is an entrepreneur, tech executive, and public speaker. He's also the author of the infamous book, Decode and Conquer, amongst many other great interview prep books. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lewis. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's, it's definitely a blessing. Thank you. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about your background and career? Absolutely. I'll start off with education. So uh, I got my computer science degree from Stanford University, and I got my MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. And then from there, I spent about 10, 15 years in corporate America, uh, places like uh, Google and Microsoft. Uh, When I left corporate uh, about, what was it, back in 2011, I was the director of product management for Microsoft's Bing search engine. So my team of about eight direct reports, we were responsible for figuring out when you typed in a query like buy flowers into the Bing search engine, what kind of ads uh, to show. Uh, since then, um, for, for about the last 10 years, I've become a, an entrepreneur. And I'm sure, Pavi, you've got friends and family who are entrepreneurs, and I'm no different in the sense that I get myself involved in way too many projects, but by far and away, um, my biggest emphasis uh, these days really revolve around uh, two major things. Uh, the first one is my uh, interview coaching, interview preparation company called Impact Interview. And then the second initiative is I just can't seem to stay away from building software. So I've got a software startup called uh, Via Maven, and we focus on uh, creating uh, performance feedback software for managers. Awesome. Sounds like you have a lot of things keeping you busy. Absolutely. So this is our first time having a product author on the show. And before we get into career advice, I wanted to learn about your interest in writing. Could you tell us what made you interested in writing about product management and then subsequently all the other things that you've written about as well? Yeah, um, I'd want to say maybe just good uh, product management ethos. Uh, You've always, everyone's heard the saying, listen to your customers, and that's exactly what I was doing. Uh, We started off the uh, impact interview uh, company since 2008, and for many, many years, my customers, my clients said, Lewis, um, it'd be great if you could just write a book about the product management interview process filled with uh, example examples and answers so that we could see what it's like to have uh, perfectly modeled answers. And uh, for the longest time, I said, you know what, that's a great idea, but I'm just completely busy. And then finally, uh, one day I just said, you know what, the customers have been asking for it, let's just do it. And so I just uh, jumped right in. And uh, here I am now. Um, I think it's been about seven years since I published A Code and Conquer, which happened to be my first book. Now I've written uh, somewhere in the range of about eight books. And so I guess once I got started, I just couldn't stop publishing books. That's awesome. And I'm so glad you did write that book because it's something I read when I was preparing for interviews. And I know a lot of people that have read it as well. And as you said, I think it's really powerful to have examples or 
model answers so you know what you're working towards as you prepare. So again, I really do appreciate that. Thanks for the compliment. As you mentioned, in addition to Decode and Conquer, you've written some other books. And so I wanted to ask if you could tell us more about those in your own words. And in particular with the product ones, maybe you can touch on how they can help aspiring PMs. I'll take your cue. So I'll just focus on uh, the product ones and I won't go through every single one of the eight books that I've written. Uh, specifically for product management, uh, there are three books that come into mind that are probably most relevant for the audience. Uh, the first one is Decode and Conquer. The second one is the product manager interview. And then the third one is titled uh, Be the Greatest Product Manager Ever. Uh, the first one, Decode and Conquer, I guess that's the, the gateway book when it comes to getting introduced into uh, product management or my series of product management books. And what Decode and Conquer is all about, it's uh, really focused on the interview process. And so, um, Pallavi, I'm sure you're familiar, your audience is familiar that the product management interview um, is not uh, a walk in the park. It's not these traditional interview questions like, why do you want to work at Microsoft or tell me about yourself? It's not even behavioral questions like, tell me a time when you disagreed with engineering or tell me a time when you had a tight deadline. Uh, there's actually a whole slew of hypothetical interview questions, which uh, you're familiar, we call case interview questions. They sound like, how would you improve uh, Facebook? Uh, or how would you um, estimate how much Gmail costs uh, Google to provide that service every single year? Or they might ask you, um, let's say you're the product manager for Facebook and you find that the number of daily active users have gone down 7% year over year. How would you diagnose it? What would you do? And so this whole slew of uh, hypothetical or case interview questions, very challenging, also very mysterious. And Decode and Conquer really focuses on demystifying those uh, categories of case interview questions and providing some very helpful framework, including the uh, famous circles method for product design questions. The second type of question, or the second book, uh, the product manager interview is a little bit different. It's less about the frameworks and it's more about practice questions. And so readers of Decode and Conquer said, this is great, Lewis. I read through Decode and Conquer over a weekend. I read through it uh, on my Kindle device while uh, taking a flight to my vacation in Europe or the Caribbean. And now I need a big bank of practice questions. Do you have that? And so the product manager interview is really focused on uh, practice. It's got about um, over 160 practice interview questions from actual companies, from Facebook, from Google, from Amazon, from Microsoft. And uh, it's really meant to be like one of those uh, math workbooks back from our grade school days. And so it's like eight and a half by 11, it's like over 300 pages. And it's really not meant to be taken on vacation because I really wanted you to just drag that book out to your dining table and just crank through those exercises. You know, it's not enough to just be familiar with the frameworks, to be familiar with the concepts in Decode and Conquer, but you actually have to practice them. And that's what the product manager interview is, is all about. And what's really great about it, it's, it's got a couple of 30-day prep plans for Facebook, for Google, uh, for Amazon, so that you do have a very structured way of applying and mastering those concepts. The last book uh, I'll mention that's relevant to the product manager audience 
is titled Be the Greatest Product Manager Ever. And that one actually has nothing to do with interviews. Uh, it's more targeted for uh, a lot of my clients. Once again, I'm listening to customer feedback and customer needs and requirements. They said, Lewis, thanks so much for the first two books. Now I've got my dream job at Google. I've got my dream job at Facebook. I'm about a year and a half in. How do I move up that product management career ladder? I can't seem to get to that next rung. And so uh, that's what that book is all about. It talks about the career progression for a product manager, starting off from being, let's say, like on the front lines where you're an individual contributor to being a uh, first-time manager where you might be in charge of a small team of two to three product managers to then moving up to director to maybe VP of product management. And then, in my opinion, um, the pinnacle of the PM career ladder, which is eventually to become CEO of a company. And it sounds like, Pallavi, you've got uh, similar plans uh, in your future, too, to potentially be an entrepreneur and CEO as well. And so um, what I've distilled is a six-step process. And knowing me, I like frameworks. I like acronyms. And I've given a special acronym called ESTEEM, the ESTEEM method, which is what I've uncovered in my research, like the, C, the six distinct skills uh, that a person, a PM, needs to demonstrate at every single one of those uh, PM career rungs, if you will. That's awesome. So it sounds like the books are super comprehensive and you cover everything from what are the foundations of interviewing to making sure you're practicing to, okay, now you're a PM, what are you going to do next? And so I'm sure your readers really appreciate the breadth of advice that you have to offer. Uh Awesome. So I'm hoping in today's interview that we can focus on some of the top advice that you've discovered um, throughout your journey of writing these books. And I want to start off by asking, what are some things that people that are interested in transitioning into product management, whether that's from college or from another role in industry, what are the things that these individuals can start doing to prepare um, for making that transition into product management? Yeah. So for people who are uh, thinking about product management as a potential career, and it doesn't matter where they are at in terms of their experience, if they're five years into their career or if they're um, currently in, in university, there's a couple things that I'd recommend. Uh, the first thing is see a product manager in action. If you can, like find a way to maybe shadow uh, the product manager, which, which is what I would highly recommend. I was able to shadow a product manager at Intuit. Uh, she was a product manager on the TurboTax product. And that was just uh, absolutely valuable, like being able to go with her with, uh, to her, her meetings to talk through all the different issues that they were faced with from a product perspective, um, thinking about the customer challenges, working with engineering, it just being able to see it with my own two eyes rather than just having a friend or an alum just tell me what product management was all about just gave me a better feel. And so if you can do something like that to shadow somebody, whether it's on your school break or maybe just taking a day off from your job so that you can shadow a, a friend, um, it's just a great way to, to get some firsthand exposure to what the role is all about. The next thing that I would recommend is, uh, you know, after you've shadowed, it would be great to you know, just read some of the key thought leaders in the space. And they've got a lot of great 
advice in terms of what that PM role is all about, the strengths, the weaknesses of the role. Um, first and foremost, uh, the the most legendary of of uh, PM writers that I can think about is Ben Horowitz. Uh, he wrote a memo um, that's now over a decade old, but it still applies where it's titled um, Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager. And it just gives a really good sense of what the roles and responsibilities are all about. And within the last five years, he had a follow-up to that, which is called um, the, the Hard Things. And it's another great book that just really gives you a view of not only what it means to be a product manager, but I guess he believes kind of in the, the same ethos that I do, which is the best PMs are CEOs. And so it's that CEO mentality. Um, the next two things that I have in mind is you know, it's, it's absolutely important to just, uh, you don't need anybody's permission to be a product manager. So um, suggestion number three is just go ahead and do it. Um, you know, be a product manager. You could do it either as part of a team, like a weekend hackathon and find a few engineers and say, hey, let's build a brand new mobile app together. You guys will play the role of a software engineer. I'll play the role of a product manager. I'll put together the uh, requirements, write the use cases, put in a product backlog, prioritize that backlog, develop those wireframes and prototypes, and then I'll work with you to uh, you know, build the app, uh, review, like you know, you know, validate the product, work with the customers, launch it, et cetera. Um, another way they could just do it is just you know, do it on your own. You know, build that product, build those ideas into a PowerPoint. The last thought is, you know, once you've had a preview of what that product management role is all about and you've committed to, to wanting to transition in, um, the biggest thing is to just, uh, aside from networking and getting the actual interview opportunity itself, is to just prepare for those interviews. Those interviews, they're hard, right? Like if, uh, if it was so easy to build the you know, next successor to the iPhone, uh, you know, Tim Cook would have done it. And because product, product design, innovation, uh, diagnosing uh, business problems is so, so hard, you definitely want to, you know, take your time to learn through those frameworks, practice those frameworks, and then um, eventually master them. And so I'd say these days, um, I'd say most, most people who are serious about transitioning into product management, especially at the top companies uh, like the Googles, the Facebooks, the Microsofts of the world, they're probably doing 30 to 40 mock interviews. And then the best of the best are probably doing about 100 mock interviews. Definitely. And I love what you started off with there about shadowing a product manager. That's the first time I've heard that advice. And I think it's super interesting. A lot of times I hear people that are interested in product management but they aren't super clear on the role. And I think that's very easy to understand just given the difference in product management across um, different companies or different industries. Um, and I think it's super important to understand what it is you're getting yourself into before you spend the time doing those 30 or 100 mocks. Uh, so I really love that piece of advice. Yeah, I, you know, I love, I love the internet. It's making so much information available to us. But there's just so much that's being filtered when you read somebody's blog post or when you listen to somebody's YouTube video. And so, you know, that filtering may not refer, reflect reality. And that's the, the main benefit of shadowing is that you just get to see both the good and the bad. 
For sure. I love what you said there. I think that's a ton of tangible advice for people who are looking to get into product management. So I want to transition now and talk about the two major steps of getting the job. The first of which is submitting a resume. So I'd love to see if you have any advice for our listeners on how they can craft a resume that will help them stand out when they're looking for PM roles. Sure. Uh, the first thing um, that comes to mind when, it, when I think about resume advice is, is number one, like start with the job description. The job description is a goldmine of information. Like it literally tells you what they are looking for. And what I would do is I would print out the job description and highlight the keywords, the requirements that they're looking for in the ideal candidate. It might say things like, uh, we're looking for product managers who uh, have experienced writing product requirements. We're looking for product managers who have experience with A-B testing and proposing experiments and uh, making hypotheses. We're looking for PMs who can make uh, data-driven decisions to influence other teams. And so every single one of those things are keywords. And it's important for you to keep those in mind, to highlight them, because um, step two, when you do write your resume, um, you can talk about a variety of different things, but it's most important to highlight and to only include the ones that are relevant to the product management role, like requirements, A-B testing, wireframing, prototyping, test, uh, uh, working with engineers. Um, anything that does not align with the product management role, leave it out. You don't want to create any sort of confusion with your readers. Like how confused would you be if you're looking to buy a Ferrari and I wrote on my resume, you know what, um, our, I'm the best Ferrari in the world. I'm very green for the environment. I get 52 miles to the gallon. And you're thinking to yourself, like, what are you talking about? It sounds like more like you're describing a Prius rather than a Ferrari. I was like, oh, yeah, we're fast too, but we're also really green for the environment. And so there's that cognitive dissonance, like it just, just does not compute. And so whatever keywords that they have in their head and the Ferrari example, they're looking for like zero to 60 in like two seconds like mimic those same exact keywords in your resume. Otherwise, it just does not compute. Uh, the last uh, tip that I have when it comes to the resume, anything that you could do uh, to make your titles align with your target role, in this case, it would be being a product manager, uh, do so. And so um, I'll start off with experienced candidates. So I have a lot of experienced candidates who want to transition into product management, and they say, Lewis, but I don't have um, any prior product management experience. But if you're one of those special people where you're lucky enough to have the title, instead of product manager, program manager, or project manager, or business analyst, or product specialist, you might have done a lot of the same product management roles and responsibilities, like writing requirements, working with engineers, work, uh, doing customer research, uh, creating wireframes, participating in A-B testing, um, you know, who knows? Like maybe you'll be able to go to your boss and say, hey, Mr. Mi uh, Mr. Ms. Boss, um, you know how much I wanted to transition into product management, even though my title has been consultant or business analyst. It feels to me that I've done a lot of product manager type things. If I wrote down product manager as my job title, would you back me up on it? And if you're like one of these smaller or medium-sized companies where you know the CEO or somebody who's 
uh, in charge and be like, yeah, Lewis, like, you know, you actually did do a lot of product management things while you were with us. Um, you could absolutely write down your title as product manager and I'll back you up in the reference calls, then by all means do it. Um, but if they won't back you up like that, I don't want you to lie. And so in those cases, the manager's like, you know, I don't feel comfortable saying that you're a product manager, like your official title was actually business analyst. And so that's what you should put Lewis. Then in those cases, you know, absolutely do not lie, go with the official title. But there's another thing that you could do, which is you could put it down your official title and in parentheses, similar to product manager. And so um, that pattern recognition, when they see it on the resume, even though it's in parentheses, it just makes you feel like you're one step closer to being that uh, ideal PM candidate that they're looking for. Interesting. Yeah, that's awesome advice. Lots of times, especially for early in career folks, if you're not entering through a new grad program or through an APM program, then even for early in career positions, they tend to ask for three to five years of product experience, which if you didn't come in from those APM programs, then how are you expected to get that? So I think what you're saying makes a ton of sense. You know, if you're in a role where you're doing a lot of the things that a PM would be doing and your manager or boss is okay with you using the title, then I think that can really help you in securing your next product manager role. Yeah. And same thing applies with those who are like in university or in grad school. Um, anything that you could do to replicate the same exact keywords. For example, if you had to do a, a final project for a class, like rather than call it the final project, maybe call it the product management project or product management final project. And then it'll uh, kind of help out with a little bit of that buzzword bingo, if you will. Awesome. And on that note, what are your thoughts around side projects as a way to sort of show PM skills? I absolutely love it. Um, not only is it a great way to strengthen your resume, to infuse your resume with the keywords that will help you stand out, but it might also be an opportunity for you to bring those side projects into the interview and then maybe more importantly at the networking meetings, which we haven't talked a lot about. And so let me just quickly go on my networking meeting soapbox here. I think a lot of people, when they say, hey, you've got to network your way to a job, uh, you know, I'm with them with 100%. Networking absolutely helps. You know, for example, um, Pallavi, you know, now that you and I, have spent some time together, um, we've networked, you've gained some familiarity. And so anytime you send me an email, um, it'll definitely have a higher priority than some complete stranger. Um, but just having familiarity is just not enough. Um, what you really want the other person to do is you want to not just have them gain familiarity, but you want them to appreciate the value that you can bring to the table. And that's where the side project can really make a difference. And so let's say you have a networking meeting with some target company. First few minutes of that networking meeting, you might say, hey, Pallavi, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. I'm so passionate about product management and especially product management Excel that I actually spent the weekend um, doing a little bit of a SWOT analysis about Excel and the col collaboration space. Do you mind if I take you through this quick three-page power, three PowerPoint presentation, just kind of sharing some of my thoughts about where some new opportunities may lie? And, you know, you kind of, you know, not normally hearing 
um, a suggestion like that, you'll probably go, yeah, sure, you're, you're curious, you're, you'd be intrigued, and you'll hear them out, and who knows, you might hear an idea or two or an insight or two that might actually help you on the job, but most importantly, you'll get a sense of their ability to do strong PM-type work, and so now that you understand their value, you might be more willing to go to bat with your peers or with your boss and say, you know, I met Lewis today. Um, he doesn't have a traditional PM resume. In fact, he's never been a product manager before, but I met with him for coffee, uh, perhaps virtual coffee <laughs> these days. Um, he shared with me a PowerPoint of his thoughts about how to make Excel even stronger in the collaboration space. And I was actually impressed. Like some of the work that he did was actually um, on par, or perhaps even better than some of the PMs here. I think we should give them a shot. And so that's what I would really impress upon. Those side projects are an opportunity for you to show value um, you know, in a variety of different venues, especially during those networking meetings. Definitely. I love that. I think nowadays, or at least the vibe I get, is that networking has a bad rep or gets a negative connotation because I think it can feel a little fake. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the way that I perceive networking is that it's really about trying to build authentic relationships so that you have someone sort of on your side to fight for you or give you a referral or support you along your career. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you definitely want those like more, you know, meaningful, more authentic relationships just for me to, you know, spend uh, our time together if we had a coffee chat and just for me to blab about how, how much I love Toronto, how much I reminds me of Chicago. You know, it'd be fun, you know, to walk down like memory lane, but you're right. It doesn't build um, that authentic value that you can go away with to your boss and say, hey, you know, I've seen this person's work in action. The most you could say at that point is just like, oh, yeah, you know, we kind of connected over like, you know, our time uh, being in the Great Lakes region, but that's about it. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So I love the talk about networking. And from there, I want to transition to talking about interviews. And I think this is what the bulk of your writing has been in. So I'm sure you have a ton of great advice to share. Can you talk us through your top advice for preparing for product management interviews? And that can be from anything from coming up with a timeline for preparing to the actual method of how to go about practicing for interviews. Sure. So advice and then kind of method for preparing. Okay, great. So let me start off with advice. So uh, clearly I've read a lot of books, but I'm so glad, Pallavi, that you asked for just my top advice. And my, my top advice is this. Uh, you know, with these questions like, how would you improve Gmail? Or, you know, should Google acquire Quora? You know, they seem like such innocuous questions. But I think the number one mistake that candidates make is just taking it too casually. And so my advice to you or to your uh, listeners is this, structure, structure, structure. Um, the great thing about structure is it uh, prevents you from taking a question too casually. Um, and then also it just makes, from a communication perspective, makes it so much easier to follow. And so... Um, anytime you encounter one of these questions where it's like, hey, um, you know, should, should Google acquire Quora, you know, having some sort of structure where you say, you know what, when I want to think about whether or not Quora is an ideal target for Google, there's really four things that I should think about. Number one, 
you know, what are the you know strengths of Quora? Number two, what are the weaknesses of Quora? What is the opportunity or the synergies between Quora and Google? And then what are some potential threats? And you know where that came from? That came from good old SWOT analysis, but you can kind of see how um, when it's, you know, got that, you know, four pillars or four categories, it just feels like I'm attacking it in a very analytical, very thoughtful type manner. It feels very, you know, complete, you know, at least the way that I'm going to approach it. And then it also has the benefit of giving a little bit of a roadmap where you as a listener know, okay, I now know how he's going to spend our next five minutes or 10 minutes together. And I would say this is probably even more critical these days, given that a lot more interviews are going to happen virtually, uh, where you don't have the benefit of a whiteboard to kind of you know, help break down the different areas that you're going to go to, or you don't have the benefit of body language to kind of check in and see if the, the listener is following. And so um, structure is absolutely important. And when you hear me say things like structure, you're probably thinking of frameworks like SWOT analysis, or if you guys have had experience with consulting case interview frameworks like the three C's, and then of course, some of the frameworks that um, I've developed like the circles method um, for product design questions. And so that's what I would recommend from a, from advice perspective. So, you know, don't take these questions too casually. Structure will absolutely help you both in terms of your analysis and your ability to convey and communicate your thoughts. Any questions on that before I talk about the methods for preparing? Yeah, I love that advice. One question kind of related to that is a lot of times I find the structures can help you break down really broad problems so you have a methodological way of approaching it. But one thing I've heard people struggle with, and I definitely have myself too, is when a question is really, really open and you have to scope it down, sometimes it can be hard to know how much you as the interviewee make all the decisions versus the interviewer. So to give context, if the question was super broad, like, you know, design a cell phone, something super open, unlike the traditional design a cell phone for the blind, where at least the target audience is scoped. So it's something more open-ended like that, even when you have the frameworks of, you know, maybe I should think about who my users or customers are, what are the problems they have, and so on and so forth, it can sometimes be tricky to make decisions on the spot to narrow down which user to focus on when you don't even have any data to base your decision off of. Do you have any suggestions on how to optimally apply those frameworks to big problems? Or more generally, you know, how do you think about scoping down problems to something that's more reasonable in a half hour interview? Yeah, um, you know, probably clearly you know your stuff, so you kind of <laughs> uh, hit the nail on the head already. So I'll just echo uh, the first part which is this, um, sometimes the question prompt tells you, uh, you know, some of the information uh, that you might have uncovered with a, you know, generic framework. So if they said, um, how do you design the ATM for a blind, then there's no need for you to go through the customer personas, the segments, because the question prompt already told you specifically that they want you to focus on uh, blind people and not deaf people or um, elderly people. And so, um, question is definitely uh, one area to look for those clues. Uh, the second part is just, I'd say, um, you know, especially for people who have spent some time in the work world, um, everyone knows that, um, you know, scoping is, you know, part of a real world, like reality. Um, 
you might be sitting in with a, a meeting with Satya Nadella and, and at Microsoft and Satya might just bellow out and say, compete, you know, I want us to compete against YouTube. And it's like, okay, <laughs> from those five words, like, uh, that's a pretty broad proclamation. Like, does that mean like compete with YouTube today? Does it mean compete with YouTube in five years? Does it mean compete with YouTube on mobile only or YouTube um, on the Xbox platform? And so there's no shortage of clarifying, aka scoping questions um, that are involved when you sit on executives and they give you a, an ambiguous premise. And so, you know, take some of those um, real life experiences and do the same thing with the interviewer. I'd say, you know, think of them less as an interviewer and more as a collaborator and, you know, ask those clarifying questions like, okay, you know, like you want me to compete against YouTube, what kind of time frame are we looking at? Or you want us to compete against YouTube, um, which platform are we discussing? Or you want us to compete against YouTube, what aspect of YouTube are we thinking about? Is this like a you know video storage service? Is this more of like a social media platform? Um, you know, is it some you know something for you know YouTube on on set top boxes? And so all those clarifications are key. Uh, the last thing to add is, you know, some interviewers uh, you know, are much better at um, collaborating and answering those clarifying questions, and so. A company that has one of the best reputations in terms of collaborating and interacting and answering uh, candidates' clarifying questions is is Facebook. Um, and then there are other companies who are, um, you know, have a reputation. It's not like consistent 100%, but Google is one where the interviewers are known to be less collaborative. Like you ask them, you know, which platform should we consider? they might just come back and say, what do you think? And so um, it could be a little dismaying to work with an interviewer who seems to refuse to ask, answer your clarifying questions. Um, you know, it's definitely worth trying to see if they're willing to engage, but if you feel like they're stonewalling, um, you know, don't be offended. Um, you know, maybe it's a personality quirk or maybe they believe that answering these clarifying questions or doing the interview question for you just know that, you know, at the end of the day, if they're not giving you any sort of uh, answer or response to your clarifying questions, um, the least that you could do, your default, would be to um, provide your own assumption, right? And so if you ask them a question about, you know, which platform should we consider, they won't answer, then you could just perhaps say, you know what, to make things simpler for us, because mobile is such a big initiative, why don't we just focus on YouTube for mobile, for instance? And then that's kind of their last chance to say, no, they disagree. Um, but uh, I am with you. Uh, scoping is definitely a challenge for many interview candidates. Yeah, I think that's awesome advice. And, you know, now if I ever find myself in a meeting room with Satya and he asks me that question, at least now I have a better sense of how to answer. Yeah. <laughs> the other question I had on that note before we switch to how to prepare is a quick question on virtual interviews. Given everything going on in the world right now with COVID-19, I'm sure that most interviews are probably being conducted virtually. So I was curious, especially with your experience in your company Impact Interview, if you had any tips on how to kind of put your best foot forward when it comes to virtual interviews. 
Because a lot of times they can be more awkward than in-person interviews where it's easier to communicate non-verbally as well. Yeah, you know, I, I won't run through the basics because there's no shortage of advice about uh, when you're doing these virtual slash video conference type interviews, make sure you're checking your computer setup, the sound, your network connection, um, your background. You don't have anything distracting in the background. I, I was on a video conference the other day and somebody's um, uh, half-naked roommate was running through the, <laughs> through the frame. And so that was a bit of a distraction. Um, and then, of course, lighting. Um, is another thing to always remember. Like you don't want to be backlit, otherwise they just look kind of weird and creepy that you're in this really darkened room and they all they can see is your shadow. Um, the the one thing that I, I maybe want you guys to consider is this: um, in the real world, I'm a huge fan of whiteboarding, um, and and the great thing about whiteboarding is just. You know, there are two types of learners out there. Um, there's there's people who learn audibly, um, uh, and then there's another set of people who learn visually. Um, I just happen to be one of those people where I'm just a visual person. Like you could repeat something to me audibly, like three times, five times, ten times, and I'm just not going to get it, especially with names. But if you just like write out your name on a name tag, then it'll just click. And so you know, knowing something like that. Um, and of course, the benefit of you know whiteboarding is you get to draw some really delicious piece of eye candy, and it also slows down your thinking. Um, so, whiteboarding is just absolutely impactful. I just love it. Um, in the virtual setting, uh, it's hard to do whiteboarding. I've had plenty of people who try to create some sort of setup where uh, behind their shoulder they've got a whiteboard, and they're hoping that the interviewer can see the whiteboard behind their shoulder. And uh, I've had plenty of clients do that for me. And, you know, all the times that they've tried, it's never worked. Like the glare, the, the markers, you know, starting to dry out. I could never see what they're writing. And so um, I feel like the best alternative to whiteboarding in a virtual interview um, would be either you could choose some sort of high-end whiteboarding software uh, the one that seems to be making the rounds, I haven't tried it, tried it myself, is called Miro, Miro.com. Um, and if uh, you don't use something like that, I guess on the very low end, you could use some sort of um, maybe like collaborative uh, editor like uh, Word 365 or a Google Doc as a way to um, share your ideas um, and then share that screen with them or share that link with them so they can fo easily follow along. Awesome. Yeah, that is really great advice. And I do find that for PM interviews, when you're laying out structure or wireframing and things like that, it is definitely very helpful to have a whiteboard and be able to draw things out. So that's really great advice. All right. So that is enough tangents from me. I will let you get back to our original question now. So we talked a bit about um, advice on preparing for, for product management interviews. Do you have any more advice on the process of actually preparing for those interviews? Yeah, in terms of the process, um, the biggest tip there is just, um, you know, please do those mock interviews. Uh, I guess my favorite analogy is this. Um, I, I can't recall anybody have, who's, who's won a karate tournament just by reading 
a, a book about karate. Like you actually have to like practice and spar and, and basically get into the ring. And same thing with the interviews. I, I'm glad, I'm flattered that people are, are getting my books and they're reading them, but just reading it alone, being familiar with the concepts, being familiar with the answers is, is not enough. And so the practice is absolutely key. And uh, the great news is, you know, if you're having trouble finding uh, people to practice with, if you just jump onto my uh, Slack group, you can just easily Google it, Lewis Lynn Slack Community. Uh, you'll be able to find other people who are uh, getting ready for their PM interviews. And uh, like I said before, um, you know, the secret is out. I'd say most serious candidates are definitely preparing in that 30 to 40 mock interviews range before they uh, enter an interview that they really care about. Definitely. And I am part of that Slack community and will kind of second that it can be difficult to find people to mock with. So that was actually where I found people to mock with back when I was preparing for my Microsoft interviews. And I even met people who subsequently joined Microsoft around the same time as me and are now friends with me today. So it's definitely a useful group. um, And I appreciate you setting that up. That's just for practice, but networking too. I love it. Awesome. So it sounds like you've talked to a lot of people um, and a lot of people have given you feedback on what you're writing about and the knowledge that you're sharing. So I'm wondering if with any of the people that you've interacted with, are there any common challenges that you see people facing when they attempt to transition to product management? And maybe as a bonus, you can shed some light on ways that they might be able to mitigate those challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I've said plenty about uh, interview advice and tips. And so I'll just say like more about like when they've trans uh, they've they've made the transition they're just like starting in and their product management role i'd say um some of the challenge i'll just mention three three challenges that come to mind uh number one uh you know being a pm can be disorienting <laughs> you're being pulled in by all these different people uh with all sorts of different demands you're working with engineers and they've got one set of demands and then you're working with designers and they've got one set of demands and salespeople and marketing and legal and biz dev and pr and ops and customer support and then you've got your own set of like pm peers and boss and executives and so just the noise like just managing that noise is is so so you know disorienting <laughs> it's probably creep vertigo and so my my first tip there is, you know, if if you feel disoriented, if any of the, your listeners feel disoriented with, um, like, what am I supposed to do? I feel like there's like a thousand mouths to 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 feed. Um, is to, you know, get in that good habit of being able to collaborate with your boss and figuring out your what your priority should be, and and getting to that you know just comfort zone of saying, okay, uh, you know, Mr. Or Ms. Boss. Um, you know, here are some of the things that people wanted me to do. Like, which one do you think is should be my top priorities? Or, hey, you know, here are the top 10 priorities that I hear from you. But, you know, just to help me prioritize, like, what are the top five things? Or what are the top three things I should prioritize? Are you okay if I leave off, like, item number eight or item number nine? And so, um, you know, being able to filter out that noise, prioritize effectively is kind of tip number one. Um, the second tip is, I'd say, uh, you know, how do you how do you figure out, you know, how to how to deliver value as a product manager? Um, 
And it's tough because, you know, as a product manager, you're kind of that, that like in between role, you're in between all these different functions in between engineering, in between design, in between, you know, sales and support and so forth. And so uh, because you're not actually doing the coding, because you're not actually doing the design, because you're not actually selling the product or creating the marketing collateral, like sometimes you could doubt yourself and say like, you know, what, what value am I supposed to provide? <laughs> and so um, I'd say, you know, as valid as those fears might be, you know, try to set them aside for, for a second. Um, maybe perhaps like, you know, pause those fears for like, 90 days into the job and then try to just be in the present and listen to your boss, listen to your teams and just kind of hear out um, where they really need help. And, um, you know, pretty soon it'll be apparent to you where they need help. And then hopefully it'll align with some of the strengths that you do bring to the table. If it doesn't, it's okay. You know, do what good leaders do. Um, if they need you to score, then score. If they need you to collect rebounds, then collect rebounds. Um, but, you know, try not to get, you know, too upset about like, you know, what exactly is my purpose here? Because it's, it's a very common feeling. I think people call it the, uh, the imposter syndrome. And then the last thing that I think about for PMs is, you know, even for folks who've kind of mastered the first two things, um, a couple years down in, in their role, one of the biggest frustrations would be uh, they'll look at their peers and say, okay, we entered in as PMs at the same time, but so-and-so has been promoted to be a you know, group product manager. How did they get promoted? How come I wasn't promoted? And uh, the most common you know, trend that I've seen is uh, the ones that uh, get promoted into kind of that frontline managers uh, they're usually ones who have really strong communication skills. And so um, it's something to, to consider for all the listeners out there is that if you're not getting promoted to be a frontline manager, um, is there something about your communication skills that um, makes people pause? And, you know, it's, don't know if it's fair, but it's a very human thing to do when they're thinking about who to promote from the front lines they're thinking, okay, we're going to promote somebody who uh, basically mimics uh, some of the, you know, best managers and best executives, uh, you know, in our company. And when they think about some of the best executives of your company, you naturally think about um, the CEOs. And when it comes to CEOs, you know, their performance is all over the map. There's some really good CEOs, and then there's some really bad CEOs, but whether or not they're good or bad CEOs, the one unmistakable thing about all these CEOs is that they've got really stellar communication skills. Um, they're very strong at communicating um, with you know, customers, with Wall Street, with employees, with partners. And so um, if strong communication skills is not already uh, in your skill set today, it's something to definitely invest in um, not only in the near term, but it's probably going to be your number one uh, skill uh, for the rest of your career. Definitely. And wow, with those first two points, was that accurate? I'm about nine months into my first full-time role, and I can definitely say the first few months, um, especially having so many things coming onto my plate and not knowing how to prioritize, and also just kind of understanding how to add value. 
Like you said, as a PM, you're not the one that's coding, you're not the one that's selling, but your role is still super important. And I think a lot of the role is really just supporting the people around you. Um, so I can definitely relate to that. And I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with those things. Awesome. So Lewis, you have shared a ton of incredible advice. You know, if I was taking notes during this episode, I'd probably have a list of, you know, more than 50 things. Um, but what I love to do at the end of the episode is ask if you had to boil it down um, and you could give just one piece of advice to our listeners that are aspiring product managers, what would that one most important piece of advice be? Oh, boy. Um, it's hard. <laughs> I'm so opinionated. And then uh, clearly, um, I I have a problem with being succinct. Otherwise, I wouldn't need like eight plus books to <laughs> communicate all my thoughts. Uh, but I, you know, I think the, here's the interesting thing. It's, um, you know, regardless of, you know, whether your end goal is to get a job offer, regardless of whether your end goal is to, you know, become a CEO, um, you know, it seems like the, the common thread to all of these things is, um, you know, to get those things, to demonstrate your value, your your worth of, of uh, you know, getting the job offer, becoming CEO, becoming an executive or a frontline manager really just comes down to one thing, which is, which is communication. Um, and so, you know, many of the things that we talked about, like using frameworks, uh, being structured, um, you know, telling a story in a way that influences others, that's memorable. It all just kind of comes down to communication. And so um, if there's one piece of advice I'd give is just, um, you know, absolutely focus on your communication skills. And I, and I think it's, it might be something that um, sometimes it's a little bit discarded by people who are native English speakers. They're like, oh, well, that's not for me because, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've spoke the, the native language or the official language all my life. Um, but you'll be surprised. You know, there's some people who've <laughs> spoken English myself included for many decades and it's still terrible communicators. And so um, it's, it's definitely um, a super important skill. And it's something that even myself, I'm constantly learning uh, how to communicate my, my ideas more clearly, more succinctly and, and uh, you know, in a more memorable fashion. Definitely. I love it. And I think that's something that will help not just with PM, but with anything you want to do in life. I think being able to communicate effectively, being able to tell stories, um, all that is really integral to getting others on board with the vision that you're working towards. So that was a really great one piece of advice you boiled it down to. You're welcome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Lewis, for taking the time out of, I'm sure, your busy schedule uh, to share your advice and insights with us. I think there was just so much great content in this episode, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast and um, yeah, I wish everyone the best of luck, not only with their interviews, but in their PM careers as well. Thanks for joining us on this special episode of Paths to Product, featuring product author Lewis Lin. If you're looking to pivot to product management and want to suggest a transition to cover or have transitioned into product management yourself and want to be featured, reach out to us at pathstoproduct.com. See you next week.